0: welcome back to kscj radio 1360 am 94.9 fm in sioux city iowa i'm brian vikalskis and this is having read that conversations with authors about their books and my guest is Deborah G. Plant. She is the author of the brand new book, Of Greed and Glory, in Pursuit of Freedom for All. Uh, Deborah was also the editor of the New York Times bestseller Barracoon by Zora Neale Hurston. That was the story of the last slave brought to America in the transatlantic slave trade route. And, and I know I've way oversimplified this, <laughs> that, that uh, Barracoon book, but Deborah, Of Greed and Glory you talk in there about human bondage and how it still exists in America all these years after slavery was abolished. And again, I've oversimplified your book, but can you set it up for us so the listeners can understand what they're getting into with this book?
1: Uh, yes, of course. And um, what, what we're looking at is, is the fact that what, what I've come to understand is slavery is not so much an institution as it is a mindset and a worldview. And that mindset and that worldview has has continued. It has, uh, through, from colonial America into uh, antebellum America into modern-day America. And and so, and one of the things that has helped to preserve this is, is the 13th Amendment uh, in terms of the abolition of, of slavery. And it's, tells us that, you know, slavery was abolished except um, in terms of uh, being used as punishment in relation to uh, crime. Anyone convicted of of a crime could be subjected to slavery. So this, this amendment, even as it abolished slavery, it preserved it. And not only did it preserve it, it allowed it to basically go into... Uh, those those states that were not so-called slave states and mass incarceration which uh, I get into a lot of discussion of in the book is just one aspect of what that slavery looks like uh, in modern day America.
0: Is mass incarceration the jumping off point for modern day slavery and involuntary servitude or is that simply one of the examples of it?
1: This is one of the examples of it, Uh, because as I said, you know, when we look at mass incarceration, particularly we're looking at penal institutions. And the point is that, as I said, uh, slavery is not so much an institution as it is a mindset. And so we'll see that mindset. And that mindset is uh, we can look at it very clearly as master and slave. There's this idea that someone has the authority uh, to subject someone to enslavement, forced uh, forced servitude, and treat that person as property. And we see that mentality in whether we're looking at corporate America and how people who work in corporate America are treated like property, uh, very often paid very little for what they do, uh very few benefits and are uh, being surveilled all of the time, so what we're we looking at if, if we if we look at slavery as this phenomenon of a, of a thought system uh, of a worldview, then we'll, we can see it in every sector of our society.
0: One of the things I found interesting in your book, and you focus a lot on the criminal justice system and a prison where your brother is incarcerated in Louisiana, is this whole idea of absolute immunity for government actors in the criminal justice system, specifically prosecutors and judges. Can you explain how that absolute immunity plays into the continuation of this involuntary servitude absolutely yes it's
1: um, in my brother 's case in particular, uh, he talks about being, being uh, presented with a plea deal. And the idea was that if my brother would plead guilty to the crimes that this prosecutor wanted to to, to, uh, have to convict him of or to have him plead guilty for, if he pleaded guilty, then he would have uh, 20 or 25 years in, in prison. If he did not plead guilty... Then he would be charged with additional crimes that he did not commit, but he'd be charged with them, and that he would be put away for life. He would be subject to uh, a life sentence at, at at hard at hard labor. And so my brother refused that, believing that the system would work and that the, he would be found innocent of what this prosecutor wanted to charge him with, and. But the prosecutor, and and they'll tell you, uh, the scholars will you know will tell you, and prosecutors, well they demonstrated themselves. It's like whatever they can make stick, they will charge you with, and that was important, the conviction, not justice. And so they are allowed to do it. They're allowed to, to charge people with what they're not guilty with, they're, as long as they can, if they can prove it find if they don't find, but if they can prove it, that's someone's life that uh, has been compromised. And they can do this. They can ignore evidence. Uh, They can distort the truth. They can use lies. And they are allowed to do it by virtue of representing the state. They're winning cases for the state, and the state allows them to do this. And so they, they have this immunity. If, if they've done something wrong, they don't have to admit to it. Uh, even when there are cases and where the, the, uh, uh, a case may be overturned, the prosecutor would take that back to court to try to win again that conviction. Uh, it's about winning. It, it, it's about conviction. Uh, it's not about justice.
0: Chatting with Deborah G. Plant about her brand new book of *Greed and Glory: In Pursuit of Freedom for All*. It's available everywhere. Deborah, I, I know that you hold a couple of different advanced degrees from the University of Nebraska Lincoln. You're not a Midwesterner by where you grew up. How did you get to Lincoln, and what, what was your experience like there? Because that's not too far from here.
1: Oh wow. well, well uh, I got to I got there because uh, they had a really good. Uh, Program in terms of what I wanted to do, I was interested in writing, so I wanted to go into an English department that uh, had those concentrations that I was interested in writing, as well as literature and uh, uh, some some these these other interests that I had, and and they offered me a really good uh, uh, what I call it incentives to come, and and so those incentives just like, okay, that clinched the deal for me, and I, and I went there. And, you know, I had to learn to live in the cold, and I never experienced that before. Uh, but, you know, it, it, I enjoyed being at the university, and I really learned to, to, to love living in Lincoln, Nebraska. That's, that's where I was. Uh, so both in terms of uh, being at the University of Nebraska and, and living in Lincoln, were really good experiences for me.
0: But being in the cold is nothing I want to, you know, repeat that. Yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a detriment to a lot of people wanting to hang out here, especially in the wintertime. But I guess the trick is to get a degree during the, the warm months, right?
1: <laughs> if, if you're lucky enough to do that, yes.
0: <laughs> so uh, back to the criminal justice system, because I think that's really the jumping-off point for uh, a lot of the thesis of your book. The the idea of the qualified immunity, the absolute immunity. Another the role that plays into this is people's attitudes serving on juries because they can choose to believe or not believe whatever they want. They can believe somebody who's lying and not. So how do just common citizens, ordinary citizens who are serving on these juries help fuel the fire of this unjust uh, judicial outcomes?
1: Uh, that that's really I uh, really appreciate that that question uh, because jurors have they have a lot of power um, and the problem is that unfortunately in in our society we tend to um, see those in certain positions as the authority and again like in my brother's case uh, he. That was, that was, that was this, this, uh, this part in this jury that uh, really judged him in terms of, you know, whether he would go uh, forward from the grand jury. In this grand jury, the pro- only the prosecutor was allowed to be there. And the prosecutor basically made his case. And to the extent that there is not a questioning of, of what the prosecutor is presenting, to the extent that there is not the, the uh, sense that the jury actually is independent in that courtroom, without that sense of autonomy and independence in terms of uh, uh, the, the jury, then there is this idea that what the, what the prosecutor is telling us is the truth. And when they, there is this, you know, uh, allowing this authoritarian voice to, to paint the picture for you, that's, a, that's an almost indelible impression in, in many cases. So jurors, jurors, I believe, just like uh, all citizens in general, we have to ask questions. And we have to really be rigorous with what is being presented to us as evidence. And to a certain extent, as we relinquish our our power to make to make those decisions, we relinquish it to what you know the prosecutor has brought to, to us and presented to us.
0: We've only scratched the surface of all the issues that you raise in this book. The book is Of Greed and Glory, In Pursuit of Freedom for All. The book is by Deborah G. Plant. It's available everywhere. And if you haven't read Barracoon that she edited, pick a copy of that up too. Deborah, fantastic book here. And I thank you for joining me to talk about it.
1: Thank you so much, Brian. I appreciate you having me.
0: This has been Having Read That on KSCJ Radio. I'm Brian Vakalskis. Check out all of our episodes on our website, kscj.com, and subscribe to our iTunes podcasts. Thanks to music historian Molly Jolly and segment producer John Weasler. We will be back next time.